Welcome back to another episode of the Geek Roundtable. This is episode number 46. I am your host, Kenny, and for today's roundtable, we're going to be discussing Kroll. Joining me for today's roundtable are my good friends Joe, Brian, Megan, and Tony. I'm not going to really talk much at the beginning of this just because we had an amazing discussion. Of course, it ran long like all of our discussions do. And I'm just going to jump on in and we're going to start the roundtable on the 1980s sci-fi fantasy film, Kroll. Table and joining me for today's roundtable are my good friends Tony. Hello. Brian. Hey, Kenny. Megan. Hi there. And Joe. Greetings. Thank you guys for joining me. Today we're going to be talking Kroll. Ooh. Yeah. I'm, su- I'm so excited for this. This is one of my all time favorite fantasy sci fi movies of the 80s. Just some really basic information here. It was rated PG, the running time of two hours, one minute. It was distributed by Columbia Pictures. It was released July 29th, 1983, so it's been quite a while. Directed by Peter Yates, screenplay by Sanford Sherman, music by James Horner. The Kroll cast is really actually some well-known people. Back then, they were nobodies, but today they are pretty uh, fantastic actors. Uh, Obviously, we start off with Ken Marshall, who plays Colwyn. And Lisette Anthony is Princess Lissa. Her voice was redubbed by uh, American actress Lindsay Krause as the uh, producers wanted the princess to have a more mature sounding voice. Uh, Trevor Martin uh, was the voice of the Beast. Freddie Jones as Enir. We have David Batley as Ergo the Magnificent. And Robbie Coltrane as Rune. Uh, Liam Neeson, uh, of course Qui-Gon Jinn himself playing Keegan. Bernard Breslau as Rel the Cyclops. Alun Armstrong as Torquil. Yeah, Torquil. And John Welsh as the Emerald Seer. And Graham McGrath as Titch. And Francesca Annis as the Widow of the Web. The film made over $16.5 million in the U.S., but failing to bring back its reported budget of twenty-seven million to $30 million. Oh, wow. So it wow. was what would they consider uh, a dud. It was a box office uh, bust. But... You know, I think if you talk about Kroll now, especially if you're a nerd, almost everybody knows what Kroll is. Um, it was funny having to explain it to my wife, who is like about <laughs> six years younger than me, but uh-huh. grew up in a completely different kind of household. Like 80s sci-fi fantasy was way off their radar. And so I was like, Kroll. And she's like, what? Are you saying Kroll? I'm like, no, Kroll. <laughs> she's like, you mean the movie with Kevin Sorbo? I went, no, Oh, uh, uh, yes, I know. I, I, a certain group of people are going to know the movie, and it has become a cult classic, uh, but we'll talk about that uh, later. I just want to do a really quick, well, it's not so quick, the story, uh, a synopsis. Uh, the narrator describes a prophecy regarding a girl of ancient name that shall become queen. She says that she shall choose a king and that together they shall rule their world and their son shall rule the galaxy. So, you know what? I'm going to leave it there. That's a basic. That's a good... That's a good uh, description. It sounds like a good pilot for a new TV yeah. show. You know? <laughs> I was gonna say it sounds a lot like Dune. <laughs> yeah, Ryan, it was it was the eighties. Everything was Dune. Everything. Was <laughs> yeah, Dune. yeah. It's Kenny's true. saying that this was one of his favorite sci-fi movies of the eighties, though. Like that's actually a huge statement because back then, like there were so many great mm-hmm. sci-fi fantasy movies. Like oh, yeah. there was so much imagination. So much cocaine. Uh, <laughs> and that's clearly what was happening in this movie. So I need to know first, Kenny, what about this movie truly spoke to you more you than know any what? of the others? I don't know if it's true. I would say it was, it's not definitely not my top favorite of all time, but it's definitely, I have fond memory. I saw it in the theater when it came out. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember in, 
in what this is 83 i was 13 years old yep so <laughs> i was like the prime age for this yeah. i was i wanted stuff like this so i just got done watching the star wars trilogy so return of the jedi was the last one i, I loved sci-fi fantasy and there mm. wasn't a lot of it back then i mean obviously star wars that was the big one Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Kenny, I think you touched on something that Joe just said. In the 80s, there was so much fantasy. And when you when you and I think back, I know, you know, our generation, when you think of the 80s, there is a ton of fantasy in it. But in early in 83, when Return of the Jedi came out, I think that was the, the catalyst that mm. sparked everybody wanting to make a fantasy film. Yeah. And this came out shortly thereafter. Yeah, especially something like this that kind of melded sci-fi and like futuristic, yes. but also like very anime influenced, yeah. like it seemed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because we did, we had Excalibur, we had Ridley Scott's Legend, we had Dragon oh, Slayer, uh, or, yeah, yeah Dragon, Dragon Slayer, Slayer. yep, uh, Lady Hawk, so many right. great sci-fi right. movies. But those, for some reason, other than Legend, it's Legend, Willow, and Kroll, and Mass Starfighter. Those are my like my eighty. Ones I just, I don't care what you say about them. You can hate them all you want. I will never, <laughs> ever dislike them. And, and you're re- right. You're right. I've rewatched them now. And it's like, I think they hold up. But I also know that it's my nostalgia eyes looking at them. Remembering yeah. being 13, 14, 15 years old, watching these and just being in awe and loving it. So I don't see, I mean, yes, I can see the, you know, the, the shabby uh, graphic effects, especially Last Starfighter. I don't know if you watched it recently. Mm. What do you mean? Oh, man. Those are incredible. It's amazing, but for the time when that when that car takes off and you know takes drives and then flies up into the sky, it looks. I mean, I don't remember ever being that bad, but I watched it recently and I was like, I don't remember ever. But you you know you yeah. see the newer stuff and it's just so well blended and it looks incredible. And then you see this stuff and you're like, yeah, that wasn't so great. Yeah. You know what, though? There's something about it, even though it doesn't actually look great, there's still something about it, even today, that plays in earnest. Like, the cast believes it. Like, they are selling it mm. 200%. And not in a, like, taking themselves too seriously kind of way, but, like, they are buying yeah. into the fantasy. And when they're buying into the fantasy of the story they're telling, yeah. it makes it so much easier for us to buy into it too. You say, I mean, I don't think there's a problem with you saying that this is one of your top sci-fi movies. I hadn't seen this film in probably five years and I was kicking myself after mm-hmm. it had finished because this still stands up. There's mm-hmm. so much imagination going on. Yeah. 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 Kenny, like you, I saw it in the theaters and I remember I was reading in fame. I think it was famous monsters of Filmland before this movie came out. They were talking about, how Krull is one of the biggest budget because they're creating an entire world, an entire galaxy, you know, things we've never seen before, you know, sci-fi and fantasy. And I was like, this is phenomenal. And when you look at how they produced it, you know, they used some of the biggest sets Mm -hmm. ever created to create the believability that Joe was talking about. Yeah. 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 I mean, like I said, I think I was just the right age for this movie and it's always going to be important, you know, so it's always going to be sentimental to me. So yep. it may not be the best science fiction fantasy movie, you know, and I was really, I was, I remember, I don't know, tell me if you guys heard this story, but I heard that this was going to be a strict fantasy movie. But then when Star Wars did so well, they went back and they're like, no, 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 mm-hmm. it, has, it has to involve space as well. So mm-hmm. then they changed the bad guys to aliens who came to the planet, you know, and... And, but I, I can't find that information anywhere. And I don't know if I heard it in a behind the scenes or if I heard. I, I did just read that, Kenny. I, I did. Was okay, good. I'm not crazy. And I just read that it was originally, it the, the when I read what the original script was, it sounds like it was a lot like Legend with Tom yeah. Cruise, where there's a demon or an evil person um, trying to. To, to marry the, the or steal the princess and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and then there was a rewrite that included all the galactic. So like you, I am a huge fan of this movie. I, I love it. It will always stay in my heart. It will be a part of a part of my psyche. It will be a part of me. But when I rewatch it, I still have a lot of questions like the, the aliens, the bad guys who come to this planet. They try to steal the queen. Why? I mean, I, I oh, know no, in the no. very blurb they talk about 
you know, she, the, the queen and the, the king are going to have the child that will rule the galaxy. But after that intro, you know, scroll or the, the crawl that they have, they never mention that it's galactic again. And then they, it, the very intro scene is very reminiscent of all of those 80s sci-fi where you have this giant spaceship mm-hmm. flying across. Yeah. And then when it lands, it's like almost like the dark. It makes me think of the dark crystal, you know, yes. the castle of the, uh, um, what the are Skeksis. they? The, the, the yeah, Skeksis, the Skeksis. Yeah. Uh, very similar to that. But then, then they have it, the, the castle, which is really neat that it teleports and it's never in the same place. Very, you know, tactically sound if you think about it. But if this is an advanced planet and, and they're, trying to save the galaxy they never reference anything about space travel ever after that intro scene and yeah. it just kind of blows my mind yeah oh yeah this this movie leaves lots of questions <laughs> of, you know but again it's a fantasy sci-fi so i'm willing to to suspend my disbelief but oh yeah yeah uh but yeah this movie definitely uh tony do you remember when you first saw this movie was it in a theater or no, uh, so I was two and a half, I think, when this movie came out in the theater. Uh, but uh, so I, I did not go to this one, although I did get taken to Dune in '84, which is a different story altogether. But no, I, I saw this actually originally on on HBO. I think it was after school one day. HBO used to run like all sorts of movies, and we had HBO thankfully, and and it was just on. Mm-hmm. And I I ended up watching it, and uh, like everyone I think on, on this on, on this podcast right now, we're you know very big fans of uh, drawn to you know science fiction and, and and fantasy, and also being you know like a a child of of well a very young child in the '80s and growing up where you know movies like Conan the Barbarian and Star mm-hmm. Wars and uh, you know I mean also you know I mean like even. Uh, adventure movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, you know, very like integral to like uh, um, to me as 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 like a, a forming mind. I, I was very much drawn to Crawl, and I didn't, you know, I saw it so young that I didn't really care about a lot of the story elements and how we kind of pick up. It was very Star Wars esque after a rewatch, realizing we're kind of in this middle chunk of the story because. Mm-hmm. We understand that there's going to be a future where where you know Ken Marsters and uh, and uh, and Lissa's child is going to be the king of the galaxy. But also we have this thing with Inir and the Widow of the Web beforehand, yeah. and so there's this sort of this also a pre beast coming to crawl, mm-hmm. and then why we don't really know why the beast even wants to be on crawl, but all that didn't really matter because of the fact that ultimately uh, Colwyn gets the glaive, which is that you know the 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 shuriken yeah. spinning tele- telekinetic device that. <laughs> is the great weapon that mm-hmm. uh, and that was more than enough for you know I know seven or eight year old me to just latch on to this cool thing and just say hey this is this is a really really cool movie yeah and upon rewatches I mean I, I watch it every once in a while but it's been a few years since I had seen it before uh, watching re- refreshing for this this podcast and I think there are, there are two elements that I think make it really relatable uh, to now number one it's it's the grand musical score uh, which was just I mean we'll talk I, I about yeah we'll talk about. I, I I still sing it in my head randomly throughout throughout you know like like the you know just just the, the main fanfare it yeah. just happens but also uh, the combination of the practical effects along mm. with like Mac paintings and all the, the the fledgling green screen work that that they did but especially like when Colwyn goes to climb the mountain mm-hmm. and I don't know if they were really on a mountain but but they really I, sold I was thinking that as well I'm like they, that doesn't look safe at all and I heard right. it was a I heard it was a very unsafe production you know yeah. it was it was a fly by your pants type of thing. But that I was thinking the same thing when I was just watching it earlier today, and I was like, "Did they really film this on location? He looks like he could die." I mean, there's some, and I'm like, "That's really good green screen or really good matte painting if it's if it's not real." Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it must have been a combination of the. I mean, they they got it looked great, like especially those outdoor scenes, even with the fire mares before the fire mares start uh, mm-hmm. uh, emitting fire from their feet. You know, they, it looks really like, good up until that point. Yeah, yeah, you're like, whoa, this is really really cool. And the other thing too is the the use of prosthetics. So I mean, the yeah. the Cyclops character and also the the, the Emerald Seer uh, and all and 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 also costume design actually. Yes. The thing, uh, uh, and I'll step back after I say this, but I see a lot of, I mean, in the 80s, they were very, very big on making great sort of costumes for these things. But I'm seeing echoes of Krull in the costuming. And actually, a lot of the, you know, the, the science fiction movies and TV shows that are that are coming out today, like Carnival Row, I think borrows heavily from like a lot of the costume design. And actually, um, I'm not sure if you guys have seen the new Dune trailer, but uh, the still suit design, the armored still suit design is very reminiscent of the armor 
that is in the beginning of Krull. And I, I, you know, just having seen the Dune trailer and then watching Krull again, I was like, this is like they, it, it's, you see, I think, some of the stylistic impact from Krull yeah. today. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. How about you, Joe? Do you remember your first time seeing it? Uh, much like Tony, I saw this movie when it was on like home video on, on HBO. Being born in, in 77, uh, I was just a, a tad late to get to some of these things. But being a true child of the 80s, like my parents had me sitting down in front of the TV, like watching these movies that maybe at the time weren't appropriate <laughs> for me to watch. But I, I credit like the imagination I have, the, cre- the, the things that, that drive me creatively are because of these movies that I watched. And, you know, this film had so many moments. And I think when you put together a strong sci-fi franchise, a good sci-fi story, a fantasy story, you have to have those landmark moments that kind of etch themselves into your your DNA. Mm-hmm. And this movie has so many of them. Some of them I didn't even realize or remember came from this film. Uh, like the seer getting uh, taken by the changeling. Mm-hmm. Like, I remembered like this guy who's all pale white, but these black eyes, these stark black eyes. Mm-hmm. And I've remembered this image forever and totally forgot it came from this movie. Yeah. Um, or, or just the fact of Colwyn, like fighting the giant bad guy at the end of the movie, kind of using the force with the glaive uh, for some reason, forgot that it was part of this film. Uh, but yeah, like this, this movie I saw early on and it went on to, to kind of inform what I would seek out creatively uh, in entertainment afterwards. Yeah. Very cool. How about you, Megan? Well, I actually had problems with insomnia as a kid. I still do. And so most of the movies I've watched have come from like 3 a.m. Sci-Fi Channel, (laughs) Bravo, TNT. So it's the first time I ever saw it was on Sci-Fi Channel. Mm -hmm. Again, just like before, it's just like, oh, my parents don't care what I watch. This is cool. And this is the same time I was discovering anime. And like I was really into um, Macross. I was really into Sailor Moon. And I was just like, princesses in space. Yeah, I'm going (laughs) to love this movie. (laughs) And sure enough, it really grew on me very quickly. I was just like, oh, my God, this movie is so it's so cheesy and wonderful. This is perfection. Yeah. And I just I love the practical effects. I love the fact that the professor from Willy Wonka is in it. Yes. Yes. Too. (laughs) (laughs) Liam Neeson is in it. Hagrid is in it. Mm -hmm. Like it just kind of blows my mind going back and watching it again. I was just like, no wonder I love this so much. Yeah. It just like it really stuck with me. Like the seer with the black eyes, you see those again in Event Horizon and like Mm -hmm. seeing that as an older teenager and going, no, (laughs) having like that moment called back to crawl and being like, it's still creepy. It's still not okay. (laughs) Never okay. Yeah, it's just, never going to be okay. I was just thinking those black eyes, those contacts must be like super thick because nowadays they so make terrible. them thin and, you know, very comfortable. But I couldn't imagine like Corwin wearing the red eyes of the demon when he was portraying mm. Corwin. And oh, yeah. I just couldn't imagine. I was telling my friend who was watching it with me. I was like, those probably hurt like yeah. crazy, like having something in your eyeball. But yes, those are memorable scenes. Both of you guys mentioned the black eyes. Those, for some reason, the white skin with the black eyes and the yeah. long nails. As soon as he put his hands up, I'm like, oh, God, those nails are coming out. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, it did do well at the box office, but it has built a a fandom or, a, you know, like a cult favorite. Now, I don't know if this is an answerable question, but why do some things have cult you know, like like uh, Joe mentioned earlier, Dragon Slayer. I enjoyed it way back when, but do people talk about it? Is it listed as like top, you know, sci-fi fantasies of the '80s? I guess sometimes it could be, but it's, it's what what made what made what do you guys your opinion? What do you think made this a cult favorite? Kenny, I was going to say I have a question or a comment on this. So I did see it in the theater with you, not with you, but like you. I was same age. Yeah. Yeah. Same age as you. Incredible impact on me. But just in my most recent rewatch, it kind of dawned on me that when you watch this movie now with how many, 30 years of sci-fi and fantasy in between us, it's very reminiscent of Stranger Things mm-hmm. in a sense that Stranger Things really isn't a new story. It's the best thing of all the stories that we like kind of combined into one. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Krull has. Krull has the best of almost everything we like. You know, you have the 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 flying horses, you know, the fantasy, the sci-fi. You've got um, the wizards. You have. I'll tell you, my favorite scene was the the widow of the web, the, the oh, stop yeah. motion spider. Yep. That was just incredible. That was so well yeah. 
So so I think what makes these cult classic, even if you go back and look at it with the critical eyes, yeah, and the story may not make sense and the effects may not be as good as what we see today, there are truths in the story, both the the actual story itself, but in the telling of it through the actors, through the sets, through Mm -hmm. the, it's believable in its how you have to suspend your belief. Yeah. You, you can see it as reality. And I think that this, like um, Highlander, I would say, you know, another cult classic, you can suspend your disbelief and actually embrace things like this. Krull is real to me. It's like, holy cow. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of that is because they do take care and take the time to create a world of like what's going on. There's an actual living, breathing world that has been created to make this movie. Like you said, that. The scene where uh, I can't remember the name of the character now, but where they goes to see the widow of the web, and they present like there's this whole history between them. There's this yeah. whole other story. Like someone has that story locked in their heads, and like it's something they use to craft this world. And I think these movies that become cult classics all kind of have that in common. Where whether they actually get a chance to finally explore it or not, there is a bigger world out there. And the story is playing to that, that it's part of a bigger thing. And, and you feel that through the performances, through the way that it's produced. And I mean, boy, Kroll, it, it, it's deceptive because the way it starts, you've got like this, this space rock that's floating through space and lands on a planet. And here come demons with space horses and you kill them and little alien guys come out of their brains. And, like <laughs> there is so much crazy stuff hitting you at the same time. It's almost like the first 15 minutes of a Baz Luhrmann film where you're like, well, wait a minute. (laughs) But it's all because someone crafted this. There's a reason why the aliens are in the head and come out and burrow down. Like someone went through and took the care to come up with reasons and a history for it. And they, whether it's on the film or not, it's part of the DNA of what that movie is. And yeah, like I think that's what makes at least all the cult classics I can think of. They may not have been big box office smashes, but they all had that, that belief. They all kind of believed in themselves and mm-hmm. created a story. Yeah, yeah. Tony, you I think to... you guys alluded to this earlier, Just, to, but the I think the thing that makes it stand out is similar to actually Highlander, similar to actually Star Wars. It's, it's the way it defies genre or sort of combines two genres. So you talked about Dragon Slayer earlier. It might not stick around as much in the zeitgeist as a film like Crawl does, but I think mm-hmm. it's because Dragon Slayer is a straight-up fantasy in an age where um, there were more successful fantasy movies. Crawl may not have been a financial success at the box office, but because it was interesting, because it, it wasn't quite sci-fi or fantasy because it was a merging of both mm-hmm. it, it it stands out and that on top of the fact um you know as, as joe said earlier just the, the how how well crafted that world was the fact that we have questions about about the 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 story of krull that we actually want answers to i mean my the thing i took away from it was i, I really do hope that this does get remade or, or further explored somehow, um, you know. And I know there's always a rumor about a reboot of of, of well, how that goes on. But those questions, that story building, and just the fact that it is slightly different than your standard fantasy or your standard science fiction movie are the things that ultimately make it stand the test of time in terms of just sticking around it and being worth talking about. Even though, Kennedy, as you say, it, it was a huge, huge flop. And yeah, yeah. Just to piggyback on what Tony's saying, like, yeah, I want to see that. I want to see. The prequel story. I want to see how yeah. the glaive ended up in in the mountain. Like, who used it last, and like, mm-hmm. kind of their legacy. And a lot of good fantasy works like that. Very cyclical. So yeah, no, I would love to yeah. see more. Young Anir. I want to see Young Anir wielding the glaive. Is really yes. what I want to see. You know. <laughs> what yeah. if the son is like totally evil though? Yeah. The prophecy doesn't promise him to be good. <laughs> it's yeah. True. That's tr- that oh. true. Ooh. Yeah. The, the Anakin. Fine print. He's just gonna. Yeah. That is true. Yeah. But also true. with cult status, people are more forgiving later on in time. Mm-hmm. Like people will always talk about bugging their friends to see a movie like after ages, like, okay, you didn't want to go see because it was really popular. You're really annoyed with it. Why don't you come try it now? I mean, yeah. cult status is usually from a much more forgiving audience that actually wants to try it later on. And that endures building real fa- like fanships and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 They also, I mean, it had a pretty extraordinary group of actors, like overall. I mean, there, there were some bad acting moments, like in the beginning when Colwyn's like fake crying over his father, kind of dying. I was like, I was like, yeah, yeah. Uh, but but beyond beyond that moment, I thought it was pretty pretty well acted overall. And you know, you, you talked about it earlier, but the scene with the widow and the web, and you know, and the old one having their moment. You give Freddie Jones and Francesca Annis this this time in a very this very very small scene, and you let them, you know 
you, you let them go. And it, all of a sudden, it just brings a whole lot more meaning. And even though we don't really know what's going on, it just it makes it, it enriches everything about that movie. And yeah. and also, look, Robbie uh, Robbie Coltrane and Liam Neeson were were side parts in this movie. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. So it, uh, all in all, I mean, the, the it, it was a very interestingly and pretty decently cast movie, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that funny when they make these movies and the romantic leads are like the two weakest performers in the film? (laughs) Oh, God. I hate it when that happens. (laughs) That was one of the things that I, again, love the movie. I don't think there was enough. And again, this may be very typical of the early 80s movies where the female lead is the damsel in distress. Oh, 100%. This is the quintessential damsel in distress movie. Yeah, and I I think that the the, the female lead, uh, let me rephrase that, the female role, obviously not a lead, and I think the other part is good and bad was very clearly delineated. Mm. I mean, it, it, there, there may have been a question, you know, about, you know, the Cyclops initially, oh my gosh, you know, he's horrifying, he's terrible. You find out, you know, he's good, especially with what when you watch the whole movie, you're like, wow. Yeah. 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 Something about uh, Lissa in particular, uh, from what I understand, they actually had to overdub her entire role. Like the, yeah. the director was yes. not happy with the performance that the original actor gave. He, he wanted so that, he wanted her to have more substance. And, and I guess the actress actually had like a lighter, happier voice. And she wanted Colin, Colin. Yeah, he, he wanted something more, more meaningful and, <laughs> you know, soulful. And so yeah, he the, yeah. There's a there's one of my uh, behind the scenes we talk about that. So oh sorry, Ooh. that's good. Nope. Getting ahead of myself. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> hey, was this? Do you know? And this might be part of your, your research too. Uh, and if if I'm jumping ahead, I apologize. Was this based on like a fantasy series or a novel or anything, no. or is this an original story? Original story. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I had seen that it was written by Alan Dean Foster. The story was written by Alan Dean Foster, and, and he's very well known for a lot of his fantasy and sci-fi. But I think it was written, you know, solely as a movie. Yes, it's definitely there was no TV or books right. before this. Yeah, and even though it didn't do well at the box office, it did actually was nominated for some awards. So it was nominated for best fantasy film for a Saturn Award. Didn't win, but still was nominated, which is good. Uh, it was nominated for Best Music, James Horner, for a Saturn Award. Uh, nominated Best Costume for mm. Saturn. And nominated Grand Prize, Peter Yate, for okay. something, I have no idea, some fantastic film festival thing. That's great. And you know what? Looking at, because I, I remember his name, that he had directed Bullet, but yeah. I didn't know yes. anything else that he had directed. And going back and looking at his portfolio, his film stands out like a sore thumb. Like, wow. Yeah. There's nothing fantasy to your credit that I, I could know. see. This is but his one and only. He handled it really well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it, this movie also won Worst Picture. So it won Stinker's Bad Movie Awards. Oh. <laughs> Just got to throw that in there. It won its own episode on the Geek Roundtable. So <laughs> Redemption. That's right. That's right. So for some behind the scenes, we have the first draft of the film was titled The Dragons of Krull, where the beast was initially planned to be a dragon. However, the creators changed the beast to a more reptilian creature, leading to the title change to simply Krull. So it was Dragons of Krull. Mm-hmm. Which would have been cool, but that definitely more sci-fi or more fantasy. Mm-hmm. I love that. I like Driven. the one the one word name. Yeah. Like, kind of like Tron, Crawl. Yes. Like it, it yeah. leaves a little mystery, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have the next one, Joe? The Cyclops says that fire mares can travel a thousand leagues in a day. A league was defined as the distance a heavily armed man could travel in an hour, usually three to four miles, four to seven kilometers. That means fire mares can travel about thirty five hundred miles, five thousand kilometers a day. At an average speed of about 145 miles an hour, that's 250 kilometers an hour. I love that somebody actually did the the math. That's great. Of course they did. It's a (laughs) sci-fi movie. Someone is like, I'm going to calculate that. I'm sure somebody has calculated the uh, circumference of the planet crawl based on all this, too. That's true. That's true. True, true. If only Uh, someone had trained the actors on how to properly ride horses. (laughs) Watching watching Ken Marshall, like, with his feet in the stirrups, like, not knowing what to do at all with those things. That was the only time in the movie, honestly, that I couldn't suspend disbelief. And I'm just like, that's not. 
<laughs> that's how a king does it on crawl don't you know that's right, Boy that's king right. Tony. <laughs> well speaking about the the horses i guess a stunt coordinator vic armstrong scoured the united kingdom for 16 clydesdale horses to purchase and then train for the fire mares moreover horses from the queen's household cavalry near buckingham palace were borrowed and brought to the studio's back lot wow there you go it's crazy yeah 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 uh, Brian, you have another one for us? Yeah. So, so like I was saying earlier, th- this production utilized 10 sound stages at Pinewood Studios, including the biggest of them all, the gigantic 007 stage. Nice. Wow. That, that must yeah, have been for the... For that the, was the swamp. The oh, swamp that was the swamp. Scene. The swamp yep. was the biggest one. The swamp one. scene. Yeah, mm-hmm. the swamp was definitely used. Psychopaths run all the way across that thing too. That's that's, that's right. <laughs> I, I wonder what they did actually for the for the quicksand effect. Because, you know, that, that was actually, that, that gave me a fear of quicksand. Like, e- like even before <laughs> NeverEnding Story was, was, yeah. was the quicksand from Crawl because of just how tactile it felt and just how yes. they... You know. Well, I have a behind the scenes on that. So I, oh, will, I will give it to go. you and you can read it when it comes to that time. <laughs> okay. Cool. <laughs> I am always prepared. Any questions you have, I have them here. <laughs> So as I alluded to before, uh, Princess Lissa, uh, also her real name is Lissette Anthony's voice, was dubbed in for the final cut by Lindsay Krauss. Uh, Robbie Coltrane's character's voice uh, was fellow Brit Michael Elphick. Oh, wow. I didn't know yeah. they, they, they dubbed him. I didn't him. know they dubbed him either. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All right. Kind of sad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Brian. Yeah. So um, according to this uh, special makeup designer, Nick Maley, uh, the special effects character of The Beast it was the first self-contained animatronic suit providing not only the facial movement, but also lung, heart, and body fluid movement without a single external cable. As for the Emerald Seer transformation puppet, um, which was intercut with a non-3D transformation makeup, it attracted the welcome attention of the great Dick Smith. Yeah, these stuff, these, like Joe, I think Joe mentioned that special effects just were beyond... Yeah, they were pushing the limits of what they could do. And I had actually read that they tried some new techniques, uh, like Ergo, the Magnificent, his transformation scenes. Mm. There there was a proven technique of how you morph one into another, but they tried different techniques because they wanted to push the limits on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, there were 23 movie sets were constructed for the filming of this movie. So that's a, a lot of sets. This was a big production. Uh, a short behind-the-scenes promotional documentary about the making of the film was made for television entitled Journey to Crawl. Uh, it is now available on the DVD for the movie. Have you guys watched that? I have not. I would love to see this. It's really good. I think that's where I heard that they had switched it from a, a full fantasy to a to a science fiction fantasy and added space. Uh, it's really good. It's on the DVD set. So I don't even know if Crawl's on Blu-ray because, I, I mean... The DVD is pretty grainy on the big mm-hmm. screen now, you yeah. know. But yeah, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen it on Blu-ray, so I don't think they've done a transfer of it yet. But you could definitely check it out. It is a really good behind the scenes if you want further information. You can probably find it on like YouTube. I'm sure YouTube mm-hmm. must have for sure yeah, some copy up there. Yeah, yeah. So Kenny, two things yes. I wanted to mention about this. I, I think one of the things that I loved with Crawl, I, I guess it depends on your take. It combined the flashiness of sci-fi with all the the, um, lasers and the the fighting up front in the beginning, but it also had the fantasy piece of a lot of the effects were flame um, to include the final battle and stuff. I mean, between the fire mares and then the flame with the the, uh, final battle scenes, there's a lot of fire effects included this. So that combination of the fantasy that I would equate to the fire and then the um, sci-fi with the lasers and the galactic, that that ties into that. It's a unique blending of two different genres that I think makes us enjoy, you know, like Tony was talking. For sure. Yeah. So do you guys have a favorite scene? I know I think uh, Widow of the Web was uh, Brian's. Uh, So I think I'll say my close second to that is... um, Inside the castle, when they're running across the bridge, and and uh, they actually run across into the bridge at one point where they're getting shot at, and we lose one of our, our heroes. Mm-hmm. And on the way out of the bridge, um, when the bridge collapses, and I think what I love about that scene is 
Prior to this time, I don't think there was, or if there was, I don't recall it, Gandalf crossing the bridge in Fellowship of the Rings. Mm. And I was like, wow, this scene is that movie and they've done a fantastic job with it. So that was my close second, but the whole Widow of the Web absolutely love that stop motion. Yeah, yeah. How about you, Megan? Um, I would have to say actually the swamp because it's like traumatized me for life. (laughs) Right up there with like alien reaching for, Uh you know, space Burt Reynolds. I'm I'm totally down for all of that. I will forever be afraid of swamps, but it's also one of the most beautiful and wonderful fantasy horror moments of my young life. Yeah. So atmospheric. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I have, I have a fear of swamps, but for a totally different reason, mine is for never ending story. (laughs) We were conditioned in the eighties to be very scared of, of I was broken down. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. The water is no go if you're an 80 kid. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's, that's started with Jaws for me. That was in the seventies. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's been bad. How about you, Tony? Uh, so it's a setup and a payoff thing for me. I really dug the part, uh, when they go to see the seer and they're in the seer's lair, and Torquil goes to crack off some of the emeralds, uh-huh. and then later on, when he's talking to Liam Neeson, and he and it it's, it ends up being just stones, and then it cuts to the like a smiling like a smirk. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I really like that bit a lot. That was good. That was good. Yeah. See, I think for me it would be when um, the magician just Ergo. 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 Ergo turns into the puppy. Oh, that's so because, sweet. Yeah. That's so sweet. Because he just yeah. lost the seer, and mm-hmm. so he was trying to raise his spirit, and he turns into a puppy. Still, still a stupid wish. <laughs> yes, but I love, and I love the look on Cyclops' face when he when he says that to him. Such a good scene. Such a good yeah. scene. Yeah. Joe, how about you? It's probably just me. I really enjoyed whenever we would cut to to the scenes with Lisa, Lisa, and she would be like traversing the palace, but it was like always like she was in Monster of the Whale. Like it was always like yeah. the hands, the claws, the eyes, yeah. the, the yes, in, the, like the innards of the beast. And like I thought that was so super creative. And like yeah, and and very subliminal about like how she was captured within not just this palace, but within the beast itself. Like, yeah, it was, it was so strong storytelling wise. Yeah. It's funny you say that because my friend who I was watching with, he asked, he's like, is she trapped inside the beast? And I'm like, I don't think she physically is trapped in him, Yeah, but I think metaphorically, yes, the, the spaceship mm-hmm. thing is the beast, you know, type of, I mean, all she did was run around the entire movie in, in, mm-hmm. throughout, I mean, beautiful scenes mm-hmm. and, and, you know, sets and things yeah. but that's pretty much all she did through the entire yeah. movie so joe one of you you had mentioned all the different you know anatomical parts there is one scene in there where we see her and they pan out and she's in what looks to be an eye or yeah. she's inside like the eye or uh, the pupil and that's i don't know that's something psychologically got me i was like i'm i don't know if there's a deeper meaning to this yeah. or but it kind of I, I, for lack of a better word, it freaked me out yeah. because you see something that was so foreign in you know movies that we, we we've been watching so far. So that was fantastic. Yeah. The first time I saw it, I thought that they were trying to represent that like she wasn't actually in the eye; he was looking at her, and that was supposed to be like the reflection. But then, mm. as you're watching, she is clearly in there. Like that's like, yeah. You're right. Like it was these things that are so like visually disturbing. But like yeah. they work, you know. There, yeah, yeah. There's another scene where she's running out onto his, like his arm onto his hand, and mm-hmm. the fingers start to curl in. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'm like, is this a building? Is it real? Is it? Yeah, it was very. It's lots of really cool scenes. Even though she didn't do much, her scenes were beautifully shot. They I told. Mean, they, were, they told a lot of the story. Like no yes. matter where she goes, she can't escape it. Right. Yes. Like that's yeah. that's strong, man. Yeah. 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 All right, let's go back to some more behind the scenes. I think Brian has the next one here. Yeah, so uh, to prepare for his role as Prince Colwyn, um, Ken Marshall worked out constantly prior uh, to principal photography, training in such sports as riding, fencing, and boxing. And so, Kenny, back to your point, one of the scenes where we see him, I actually watched it during the, during the rewatch. I thought, holy crap, he's free climbing. You know, he's rock climbing, he's free climbing, and I don't see any safety wires. Yeah. So <laughs> he obviously was very athletic and, and trained. Oh, no, I mean, there's a scene with his shirt off, and you can see he has oh, yeah. a washboard ab, and I'm like, he yeah. definitely worked out for this role, mm-hmm. you know. He's not that way in Deep Space Nine when he plays uh, Michael Eddington. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
He has, you know, it, it's funny. I, I thought he had the weakest moment. Uh, I, I made a little, uh, you know, reference to this before. The weakest moment in the movie, I thought, was, was when he was mourning his father. Yes. But it, it, it always struck me because he's a very, he comes from a very strong acting pedigree. Like, he 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 has a, a BA and an MA uh, in acting, and then he also went to Juilliard. So, and this was like the first thing that he did, I think, his big, this was supposed to be his big break, you know? And then it ended up kind of not being. And then, actually, it's funny, he went on to be in, uh, there was a Mary Gross um, movie called Feds, mm-hmm. where he Played an FBI. Love feds. That's yeah. 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 Yes. 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 But so, but this kind of, I, I'm not sure if it was a career killer for him, but it kind of just didn't really let it fully blossom. It, yeah. It didn't do what he was hoping it would have done. Yeah. But, but boy, he has a, he, he was a fit man back yeah. in 1992, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Tony has the next one. Ah. So, uh, in the original screenplay, Colwyn saves Inir from the spider of the widow of the web's cave by killing it with the glaive, uh, but it was cut from the movie. Interesting. Would that change anything? Because, I mean, his sacrifice is huge for the movie. You know, yeah. him, him sacrifice, because he, he knows he's going to die because he has that sand in his hand just to give the message to, to Colwyn. But if he would have saved him... Would it have been so, any different? Kenny, I think that's one of the, uh, yes, I think it would have definitely changed this. I think it would have added a little bit more weight to the power of the glaive weapon itself. Mm. I think that would have been impressive. But I also think it would have changed, like you said, the impact of the sacrifice to get the information. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that, it's tough to say, had you been able to kill the wit- or the, the spider with the glaive, how it would have changed the the movie because one of the things that defined i think defined crawl versus a lot of other and and i'll compare it to star wars at this point yes a lot of people died in star wars but i don't think any of them had a name yes but most of the adventurers who took off on this died and and i think that that added something that at least me as a 12 year old kid hadn't seen in a lot of movies prior is the sacrifice it took to succeed in the mission which is, to me, more realistic. Yeah. If you're yeah. doing something like this, people are going to die. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's horrible, but it, yeah. it, it's just going to happen. That's I think the, the decision to, to keep the glaive to the end, I think, was smart. Uh, because, and just like Brian comparing this to Star Wars, I'm going to as well. Uh, Star Wars had the lightsaber. And the lightsaber was like, you know, it was huge, like trademark to Star Wars. You say Star Wars to anybody, they're like, oh, the lightsaber, wah, wah, yeah. wah. Like that was that was amazing, uh, and I think when they came up with this idea for the glaive, which is a beautiful piece of prop, but it's um, not practical at all. It, it's not. It's How not. How do you grab that when it's exactly, flying? Exactly. I was waiting for that blade to come out and just stab his hand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's the thing. Like they've got all these cool things going on, but that was kind of like their big load that they wanted to like. We're gonna blow this at the end of the movie. We're gonna show you how cool this thing is. We don't want to give it up too early though. Uh, so our special weapon, our special prop, you're going to finally get to see how it works at the end. And I'll admit, it's a little lackluster. Um, you know, it's it, it's a little too derivative of the force. And so mm. it, while I understand and respect the decision to keep it, and I think to keep it is to like show how special this thing really is. I feel like it wasn't special enough when it was finally mm. used at the end. Mm-hmm. But I, I agree, I, I, Joe. I think you bring up a good point is that. When people, if you see the glaive, you know, everyone recognizes it. Mm-hmm. They may not know it's from Kroll, but they do know it from some sci-fi fantasy movie from the 80s. Mm-hmm. That is more noticeable than, any, that's or more memorable than anything. Yeah. But you're right. It, it was, it wasn't the end-all be-all weapon. Yeah. You know, because yeah. I mean, yeah. I think what, what really kills the beast at the end isn't the glaive, it's the love Mm-hmm. Between the power of love, it's the power. Yeah, of the, yeah. Lewis. I mean, you know, she takes, <laughs> he takes the fire. Owen and, found <laughs> the power of love. <laughs> but it truly is the glaive is kind of lost because mm-hmm. it gets stuck into the beast. Yeah, and you know, back to what Joe said, derivative of the force. There is a scene, and I watched it two or three times, where Colwyn is trying to get oh, the yeah. glaive yes. back, and I was like, trying to get "Empire back. Strikes Back." I <laughs> mean, <laughs> almost scene for scene. I was yeah. like, "Oh man." Yeah, yeah. All right, I have another behind the scenes here. The Widow of the Web's uh, aging makeup had 23 elements to apply on the actress's face, head, and body. So wow. It was very well done. That it practical was... effect with, with the younger actress in the reflection. Yes. Like, that was usually great. that's so really good. sloppy. It was so well done. So good. Yeah. That, soul, that whole scene definitely is, 
is just incredible, incredibly done, and just mm-hmm. yeah, it's so good. What was less incredible were the game adaptations that came out for this. <laughs> Several games were developed and released as promotional tie-ins, including two Parker Brothers games, a card game and a board game. Uh, a home video game was developed for the Atari 5200 Super System, but because of low sales, it was changed to the Atari 2600 video game console, which I had. Uh, I had. I totally had this game, too. and it was a dumpster <laughs> fire. And, uh, <laughs> An arcade game, Prowl, uh, was manufactured by D. Gottlieb and Company, uh, a Columbia Pictures Industries Corporation company. Uh, Gottlieb also developed a Prowl pinball game, but production was canceled. Only 10 completed test unit prototypes exist. Hmm. Oh, wow. Interesting. I would love to play a Prowl pinball. Oh, I was going to yeah. say, that'd be a pinball. great like, Easter egg in a Rick and Morty episode now. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, Joe, you said you had the game? Yes. So oh, yeah. I was reading about it, and it said that the sequence of play, or at least what I read, the sequence of play did not match the sequence of the movie. No. It, it switched some things up. No. And you, was that and true? You, Colin was in places he was never in. Like, there's a sequence with the spider uh, where you're doing that. Uh, there's, And then, like, after the spider, you're going up the uh, the avalanche. Like, that That one, like, five-second moment in the movie, oh. they made a whole <laughs> level of where he's, like, avoiding the rocks. Wow. Going up the yeah. Mountain. And then, yeah, there's the fighting the beast at the end with the glaive. It was it was so convoluted. The control was so convoluted. And I mean, and that's Atari. Like a lot of that was you need to just fill in the blanks with your own imagination and stuff. But uh, it was it, it could have used a little bit more on the production side. Now, which one did you like better, E.T. or Curl? E.T. See, I loved E.T. And I know people I bag on e. it all the time. But e. yeah, E.T. was not a good game. No, but it, I enjoyed it. It was it was fun. It, it stuck to kind of the spirit of the movie. And I lived in a household where you didn't get a new game until you finished the one you had. Oh wow! Uh, so I had. I like that. Yeah. Same in our house. Exact same in our house. But is it worse than the Aladdin game? That's the real question here. Oh, I've never uh, played the Aladdin game. Is it pretty bad? It's so bad. <laughs> no, it was made to make you sad. Oh no. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So in addition to a bombing movie, we had a bombing video game. At least E.T. Yeah. E. had a hugely successful movie. True. Mm-hmm. True. <laughs> Which may but that makes the bombing of the video or the video game even worse. Yeah. Because you yeah, really hope it would do well. You know, well, the movie's made millions. With a with a movie with a two hour running time, just a, just over two hours, uh they, they do a lot of world building. Uh, but they also do a lot of stuff that kind of feels like it was just filler to fill that runtime. Like they go to see the seer, they get the seer, and then they're like, well, we can't find the castle here, so we've got to go to the Emerald Cavern. And I sure would have liked to have seen the Emerald Cavern, but then they're like, well, we can't go there anymore because he got killed. So part of me, the writer part of me is like, oh, this was clearly put together to kind of fill the runtime. But that being said, what do you feel like in this movie could have been fleshed out more? I would have personally liked to have seen more about the inner... Okay, well, we live in a post-Game of Thrones world, so I would have liked to see like the inner workings of, of how... How is it that there's two kingdoms on this planet? Okay, I, I would have liked to have seen, like, like, like learn more about that. And also, uh, you know, in terms of it being fantasy, sci-fi, um, and the fact that they can actually do magic, because uh, the, the entire, like, the, the wedding ceremony with the fire to water and the taking yeah. the water, the fire, you know, and all that, I, I would have liked to have um, get, got more exposition, I guess, uh, on how, how that works. And, and actually, I think about it now, that could be, like, what the Beast is ultimately trying to get, is, is yeah. like, the source of their fantastical power. So that, and, and I mean, because of the scene of the widow in the web with with uh, with Freddie Jones and an ear like like there is there is IP there that mm-hmm. th- th- there's a big IP mm-hmm. mine that they could go after I think so oh, yeah yeah I I don't think they will just because it didn't do so well at the box office it would, anyway because they were talking sequel to you know make a sequel right. to this I don't know how you would I guess you could have followed the child mm-hmm. you know and he I, would... I would love to see a combo sequel prequel mm-hmm. where they talk about the history of the glaive and its forging and the two mm. kingdoms and where they came from. But it would almost, those would almost have to be history lessons for the child who is supposed to rule the galaxy. Yeah. So if they could combine those two, that could be a very endearing story. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe intriguing. I'd like to He's see totally an animated comedy based on Ergo. 
just the end. Yes. Ergo, the musical. Yes. <laughs> all of it. All of it. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Okay, I have some more behind the scenes here. Uh, 4D Slayers were made for the movie. 20 were manufactured in only 10 days. Kenny, I think those the Slayers were a very interesting design. And I think Tony mentioned it, that, you know, when they die, you have the... It's like an alien comes out of them or something. Yeah. Again, I would like a more explanation of what those were. Yeah. And I think the other thing with the Slayers, and I agree with, I had read it online, the sound effect when they die, Mm. it was... I've never heard anything like that, but the screaming, screeching, whoo, that, that was another plus yeah. to this movie. Yeah. I actually have a, a, a behind the scenes on where they got that screaming from. So nice. we will find out in a Ooh. few minutes here. So something else. So James Horner previously composed the soundtrack for Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan in 1982. Uh, and then Ken Marshall later went on to play uh, Commander Michael Eddington in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was so, great. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about James Horner or James Horner's uh, soundtrack. Mm. I think it's one of the one of my I want to say it's my favorite part of the movie, but I think it definitely enhanced the movie. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. for sure. You know, do you guys have any favorite tunes, any favorite tracks from that? Or is it just the a title, general? I think the title track to this is just so strong. That still plays in my head. Like I, like I will be like walking down the street and for whatever the reason that will just like pop into my head. Oh, we're, we're adventuring. We're, we're going riding firing horses. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this guy just captures swashbuckling in a bottle yep. and just puts it out there. Mm. Yeah, I think back to a favorite score. I don't know that it's a favorite score, but it it absolutely caught me was with the fire mares when mm. they're traversing however many leagues they had to go. The music to me, it seemed a little whimsical. Mm. That may not be the right word, but it seemed a little, I would say whimsical fun at the time, because I think it was trying to to appeal to the you're on a flying horse. You know, this is a fantasy. Um, so to me, it actually kind of, you know, juxtaposed to that scene visually. But I think the music was very memorable because of that. Yeah. 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 Brian, you have another fact for us. Following almost a year of pre-production, which saw Peter Yates uh, meticulously storyboarding, uh, production designer Stephen B. Grimes sketching hundreds of set ideas and visual effects supervisor uh, Derek Meddings experimenting with elaborate combinations of opticals. Scores of construction workers building fantastic landscape. Crawl um, from 1983 began production in early 1982. This is not surprising at all. This, right. Find so out that was, Peter it, Yates basically, this was, was so writing the whole movie before we actually begin the whole movie. Yeah. And, and it wasn't just writing, it was rewriting. Yeah. Well, the, and that the director had such a hands-on approach to what was going on in creating this world. Yeah. Uh, that's It's not a surprise at all now. Yeah. Uh, show business trade paper Variety described this movie as Excalibur, 1981, also starring Liam Neeson, uh, meets Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope from 1977. I can see that. It's definitely a little of each. They definitely. I mean, that's one big critique of this movie is that they drew from a lot of different genres. You know, it, Lord of the Rings is in there with the wizards, and then you have yeah. you know, yeah, it's and, derivative. And yeah. It, it yeah. makes. And, you know, but that doesn't bother me because I love those elements from those movies, from that source, from those books. Mm-hmm. So why not combine them into this really cool, mm-hmm. interesting, you know, I don't mind. As long as it's not exactly, they're not calling them halflings and there's not a magic ring and they're, you know, mm-hmm. as long as it's not identical to it, mm-hmm. why not? Why not enjoy, you know? I think that's a hallmark of good sci-fi fantasy, though, when you can borrow from other things and do it well. Like, don't just borrow something and be half-assed about it. Like they borrowed, but they still kind of made it their own and they made it make sense within the confines of this world that they were creating. Mm-hmm. I think that's fine. Yeah. What's the phrase? Copying or imitation is the sincere form of flattery. flattery. Yeah. And I think that, that this applies in this. I mean, there was a love for this whole world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can see that. It's kind of like love letters for genres they really appreciated. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Uh, all right. So we got the, I got the last fact in here. Uh, the dub of the Death Scream, which Brian mentioned earlier, of the Slayers, was taken from the Mayhar Shrieks in At the Earth's Core from 1976. So. Yeah, so At the Earth's Core was an Edgar Rice Burroughs um, story, and that movie deserves its own podcast <laughs> because it was 
Doug McClure was horrible in it. I mean, the effects and everything were bad. I but ever I love this so. story. Absolutely love the story. And I had no idea that those shrieks came from something that I love so much. <laughs> do you remember the shrieks? Do, the, do they sound like I don't. And I'm okay. going to have to go find that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a movie that I love. I read the books before I even knew there was a movie. Loved the books. And then when I knew there was a movie and I watched it, I was so disheartened by how they translated it. Yeah. Um, I've probably intentionally forgotten that shriek, but now I've got to go back and find it. <laughs> Very cool. So emotionally disturbing, you had to block it out. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's kind of amazing, though, about the way that they were crafting sci-fi and fantasy. And not even that, like going even to uh, to to the Muppets and like what they were doing, the kind of theatrics that went into making like these characters and those movies and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, talking about like Star Wars and, and Labyrinth and the never ending story. And like, there was such a love and care, not just to what you were seeing on the screen, but like the audio effects, like what you were hearing and how they were going to elicit some kind of an emotion. I hear these screams and they're so disturbing. It's like, oh my gosh, it kind of takes you off guard. And I, we mentioned the Dark Crystal earlier, the sounds that the Skeksis made whenever they would talk yeah. and like that kind of creeps into your ear too. And you're like, Oh, that, that makes me feel uncomfortable, but it's good. Yeah. You know, in the confines of the story, that's what you're supposed to be feeling. Uh, and, and that's nice when someone's actually telling the story through all of the avenues that are available to them. Yeah. I think that goes back to Tony's question or comments about how this becomes a cult classic it you know it becomes a cult classic when you can take all of the individual aspects of the the movie or motion picture the score the acting the, the special effects mm -hmm. um the story itself and you put them all together and even if it bombs at the theater it still imprints itself on us yes. mm -hmm. the geeks <laughs> yeah yeah very cool okay my last question for you guys would you suggest this movie to a friend? No, this is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Would so, you suggest so, it to a non-nerdy, geeky friend? Okay, good good clarification, yeah. Kenny. I, I saw Brian's face. Yeah. I was like, oh. Yeah, we would watch this forever, but um, I think I would suggest this as a Saturday afternoon chores day. You know, if you're cleaning the house and you want to put something on in the background, because you can almost tune in at any point in this movie and see something for about five minutes that, that you're like, oh, my gosh, they're running through a swamp. What's this guy? He's throwing a spear. Oh, my gosh, he killed somebody. You know, yeah. there's a, there's tidbits of action probably like every five minutes. So you don't necessarily have to watch the whole thing. So to me, it's a good filler movie. To, to any of my sci-fi or, or geek fans, I will kick you in the shins if you haven't watched it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would recommend this movie, not just because, especially with like seeing the, the reaction of Game of Thrones and Stranger Things, like mm -hmm. sci-fi fantasy is kind of the mainstream. Like that is what, what people are craving and what people are loving. And not just because of that, you know, you watch this movie and see where, so many, so many cool things that we see in, in modern sci-fi fantasy, like Harry Potter. You see a lot of moments in this movie that you could tell that the people who made the Harry Potter films borrowed from, uh, yeah. not just using Robbie Coltrane, uh, but <laughs> that is kind of fun to see Hagrid, a young Hagrid in this movie. Uh, Liam Neeson, people would be like, man, that's the guy from Taken. Yeah, he was also in this movie. <laughs> there's No, there's a lot of cool and creative things. I would absolutely recommend it because if someone... If someone just doesn't like 80s movies because it doesn't look as slick as now, mm -hmm. they're not going to like it anyway. Yeah. But I think if someone could be like, get past that and just enjoy this and take it in for the story that they're telling, I think there's something valuable there. It's something that they're going to take from it. Cool. See, I completely agree with that. Yeah. I have a lot of friends who are thankfully very open to like different movies and films, but even like with some of my more more conservative creative friends who are just like, yeah, that's not really my thing. I think that we could sit down because of how bonkers this movie really is. Yeah. I think we could sit down together, have a couple drinks and be like, oh my God, <laughs> you believe it's in this? Yeah. But just the star power behind it is enough to, I think, to really carry it for today. Yeah. yeah. Very, very cool. Well, thank you guys for coming on the round table and discussing Kroll. And uh, do you guys have anything you want to promote before we, uh, we leave? Kenny, the only thing I, I, so you have my bio, I now, yes. my book, I have an Amazon website too. So I'll send that Great. to you, link, and you can just okay. add that. All right. Cool. Do you just want to talk about your book really quick? Um, sure. Uh, uh, real brief. Uh, I wrote a children's Christmas book called One Day Off, uh, the story of 
Santa's reindeer wake up after sleeping from the day after Christmas, exhausted and said, we want to take the day off. So the story talks about how the reindeer recruited other animals from around the world to pull the sleigh so that they could take one day off. Um, so it's it's a madcap adventure for Santa and a whole bunch of reindeer or, uh, animals across the world. Great, and it's available on Amazon now. Yes, it is. Great, and I'll have that uh, link in our website if you guys are interested. How about awesome. you, Joe? What are you working on these days? Um, okay, well, first I'm gonna eventually, I'm overdue bending Brian's ear because I've also written a children's book that uh, I still have a lot of things that I've got to go through, a lot of hoops to jump through. Um, so I, I need to bend your ear though, I need to get some time to do that. Um, so I, uh, you can hear me doing voices of various beast men on One Piece. Uh, uh, there's the, uh, definitely my roommate is the cat. I uh, did that show about a year or so ago. You can still catch that on Funimation. Uh, Id Invaded, you can catch that on Funimation's website as well, uh, where I play like, it's kind of like Bones meets that J-Lo movie, The Cell. Uh, and I play one of the uh, the main scientists in that one. Uh, it's just a, a whole bunch of anime work. Uh, I've got a, a podcast that I'm helping some friends out with called The 16-Bit Gladiators, where we talk about video games. In fact, the one that just came out, well, I mean, this is, it's, <laughs> I think when this comes out, it'll be like a, a month or so old, but uh, mm-hmm. but you can listen to us talk about Star Wars games and talking about uh, racing games. And I'll just kind of talk about genres and go around the horn and, and talk about what we love the most. Kenny, I don't know if you're a gamer, but we're going to have to have you on because you've had me on your podcast like 20 <laughs> times now. Uh, so I definitely owe you the favor, get you on with us. But that, that's it. I, I did what I said I wasn't going to do. I started rambling. Uh, please, <laughs> take it Megan, do you have anything? Uh, yeah, you can actually follow me on Instagram at Sketch It Snips. I do a lot of uh, goofy cartoon illustrations. I do a lot of horror-based illustrations. And I will be also be posting like thumbnails and progress work for a webcomic I'm starting. And just by the way, she's amazing. So I have a Henry Cavill uh, drawing that she did. It's in my kitchen downstairs. So I get to say hi to him every time I walk by him. Uh, No, she's really amazing. So definitely check out her stuff. And I'll have her website and information uh, in the show notes so you can just go there. How about you, Tony? As of right now, I don't have that that much to plug. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Anthony Nagatani. That's A-N-T-H-O-N-Y-N-A-G-A-T-A-N-I. Also, I do have a a sort of in the middle of startup YouTube channel if you want to follow me there. If you wanted to like and subscribe to me on YouTube, I am at... Uh, sign cosine tangent on YouTube. Uh, more content coming once I uh, work dies down a little bit. <laughs> Just a little, yeah. Uh, Tony and I work together, so I I know I'm his boss, so I, I, I know how much work he's doing. So <laughs> uh, you can find me on uh, on all uh, social medias. I'm Geeky Fanboy. I also have uh, I have a huge toy collection I've been collecting for 45 years. And you can see it on Instagram at Kenny's Collection. I also have a TikTok uh, account now at Kenny's Collection as well. Uh, and both of those are lots of fun. I try and post daily videos and pictures of various parts of my uh, toy collection. So uh, definitely check that out. Thank you again, guys, for joining me. I really appreciate it. And we'll be talking to you real soon. Thanks, Kenny. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Kenny. All right, I hope you enjoyed that roundtable. As I said, we had a lot of fun discussing this 1980s sci-fi fantasy uh, movie, Kroll. It's always fun when you can get a group of friends together and you all have the same enthusiasm and excitement for a movie. You know, some of us liked it a little more than others, but we all really enjoyed the movie. It was something special. And even though it's 40 years old, it still holds a very special place in my heart as one of my favorite all-time sci-fi fantasy movies. So uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Once again, I want to thank my co-hosts, Joe, Brian, Megan, and Tony for joining me. And of course, I want to thank my amazing listeners for coming back each month and tuning in to our roundtables. So until next time, guys, take care. I want to take a moment and thank my supporters on Patreon. I really do appreciate your monthly donations. It helps counter some of the costs that come with producing podcasts each month. So I really do appreciate your support. I couldn't do this without your guys' continued support, and I really do appreciate the donations every month. It does really help with the cost of doing these podcasts every month and so many of them. So I really do appreciate it. And if you guys want to help me out and be a monthly donator or just give a contribution one time for one month, you can find me on Patreon. Just look up Geeky Fanboy Productions, and I would really appreciate it. Thanks again, guys. Oh, my God. 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 Oh, my God.
That was the scene in California's Mojave Desert five years ago. Our historic first view of the newcomer's ship. Theirs was a slave ship carrying a quarter million beings bred to adapt and labor in any environment. But they've washed ashore on Earth with no way to get back to where they came from. And in the last five years, the newcomers have become the latest addition to the population of Los Angeles. Alienation, the newcomers podcast, is a fan cast devoted to the groundbreaking but short-lived TV series Alienation. This series tackles social issues like racism, bigotry, and intolerance with an alien twist. Each month, we will bring you a podcast dedicated to a single episode. The host will give you their thoughts on the episode, as well as some little-known behind-the-scenes information. So please subscribe to Alienation, the newcomer's podcast on iTunes, or visit our website at alienationpodcast.com. Attention, attention. Are you a fan of MASH, one of the most groundbreaking television series in history? Then take a listen to the MASH 4077 podcast, where hosts discuss their thoughts episode by episode. They will also share with you some little-known behind-the-scenes information, trivia, and so much more. So come and find them on iTunes by searching MASH 4077 podcast or online at www.mash4077podcast.com. The Geek Roundtable Podcast is a Geeky Fanboy production and has a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, works 3.0, United States license, all rights reserved.